Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Well, we got to get down to business. Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. Friday, April 24th, 2020 is the date. Of course, you're listening to it anytime. As I always do with the bonus guests, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce him or herself. Distinguished guest, take it away. Introduce yourself. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, my name is Miles Camp Lassen. I am the web editor at In These Times magazine uh, and writer, freelancer, sometimes uh, radio guest as well. I'm very happy to be here on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Miles is a regular guest on our show, and in the old days when you're in the studio, uh, every Thursday at 1.30, Miles would be our guest. Since we moved to the attic uh, with the coronavirus pandemic, we've sort of blown up the schedule. <laughs> it's a miracle we're doing any of these things. Work and, smart, and not hard. <laughs> so uh, sometimes Miles on Thursday, sometimes he's on Sunday, whatever. If you love Miles and our listeners love Miles, you're going to get them. Just pay attention. <laughs> And you'll find them, right, Miles? That's right. And, uh, you know, I'll uh, push all these uh, interviews out on my social media as well. So, you know, you can yeah. always find me there. Yeah, because uh, I think people are used to you in the, that certain routine. But all routines have been shattered. All right, I have a whole list of things uh, I want to talk to Miles about. Uh, Miles is one of our most consistent uh, leftist guest and that his he speaks to, in many ways for a lot of bernie sanders supporters when he comes on the show uh he was very adamant in his support for bernie so people are a lot of our listeners like uh to hear what you have to say miles about the ongoing election about joe biden is, is he uh, staying true to the democratic values uh, about what's the proper way to to confront donald trump so i have a whole list of things to talk about uh, we even a, a local issue from now to time to time. Miles, born and raised in Chicago, went to Whitney Young High School, so he's got some thoughts about how Lori Lightfoot's running the city. So we'll get into uh, Joe Biden, Michelle Goldberg's take on Joe Biden. We'll get into Trump's handling of the of coronavirus. His interesting uh, suggestion that people try disinfectants uh, to battle coronavirus. Uh, we'll get we'll talk about what's going on uh, Wisconsin. A big march today by uh, anti coronavirus activist if i'm not quite sure what to call them pro-trump maga hat wearers let's let's just be honest with what they were uh but before i do any of that i'm going to have you put your bulls hat on and uh just briefly talk about 
the thing that I'm utterly obsessed with, and that is The Last Dance, which is the movie about my beloved Chicago Bulls. People may not know this about Miles. He's a big sports fan. Uh, and uh, so what's your take so far on the Bulls documentary? Well, you know, the, one of the last big public events uh, I went to before uh, our current lockdown days was uh, actually my first Bulls game of this past season that has now been truncated. Uh, so that was the last time I was really around tons of people with that, a Bulls game that was a very uh, sorry affair and, you know, a world away from the era that is documented in The Last Dance. But as you said, you know, I grew up in Chicago. I, uh, you know, grew up loving the Bulls. I went to games that classic 97-98 season that is uh, profiled there. And even watching, you know, this pretty uh, tired crew of, uh, you know, third stringers, basically, that are we're starting for the Bulls for their uh, 2020 team. When you go to the state United Center and you hear that Alan Parsons Project song come on for the intros, I think it's uh, called Serious, but you know, that piano mm-hmm. uh, the intro, there's really nothing like it. You know, it just immediately sends you right back. Uh, of course, you don't, you know, these days you don't hear from North Carolina 6 uh, 6 Michael Jordan. You, you, you know, hear the cast of whoever they've got uh, <laughs> playing for them now. Yeah. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to trash the Bulls uh, too much right now because, you know, they did do this pretty big move, which has been the primary fan demand for a long time, which is fire uh, Gar Foreman and John Paxson. And, you know, they basically did that. They've got this new guy uh, in from Denver. Arturis, and he says he's going to be shaking up things and uh, probably cleaning house. So I think there is some hope for uh, us committed Bulls fans. But for anybody, even if you're not a big sports fan, there's just, you know, finally this uh, something to look forward to, for one, and that, you know, for the next, what, four, sun, five Sundays, we're going to see, uh, you know, new content in these um, uh, in, in these episodes, but it's also, you know, it's pretty incredible to think about this was an iconic sports team that was world renowned that really put, I think, you know, maybe NBA into the global phenomenon it is and made Chicago, you know, the global uh, metropolis it is in so many ways was uh, that, that Bulls team and the think how sports has this major societal ESPN documentaries like the OJ uh, one really did go into a lot of the societal ramifications of the concept of the uh, theory. I don't know if it was terrible about it, but even if straight exists, I think it's you know enlightening for everybody to look at how this happened, how the Chicago Bulls really changed the landscape of sports in America. So for me, the Bulls yeah. Yeah, I uh, when you were talking about entering the United Center, really, uh, I think you were hitting a a right on target. Uh, Just the Bulls have been so bad for so long with with one one or two years uh, where they like had a glimmer of hope that there was that one great year in 2011 but that one constant the jordan statue the introduction the lights going down uh you're in the building that jordan built basically and you're right i think the the bulls have been uh 
milking that baby for a long time. And I think that's part of the reason why attendance was so great until this year. Where the last the last two years that they finally um, the attendance started falling, which is probably why they decided to make the change. I think they would have if that place was selling out, they would have just staggered along with Gar Foreman forever. But uh, anyway, just to let people know, uh, full bulls talk. We're going to, for uh, making this commitment uh, every week for the next 10 weeks, I'll have at least one just uh, Bulls discussion, Bulls conversation. The first one I dropped earlier this week, Kevin Blackstone, old friend of mine and sp- great sports writer. We we're talking about the Bulls in the old days. And I think we're going to bring Steve James on, directed Hoop Dreams. He'll be our next guest. So, been a lot of Bulls talk on this show. But all right, Miles, let's make the transition away from basketball uh, to politics. And uh, your view on, well, let's just start with uh, the Biden campaign uh, and Michelle Goldberg's column. I sent that to you for a reading. Michelle Goldberg, uh, a liberal columnist for The New York Times, she supported Elizabeth Warren in the the, uh, the primary season, but she quickly has jumped aboard the Joe Biden bandwagon. Uh, and she wrote a column last week, which I sent to all my lefty friends, uh, in which she was urging leftists and Bernie uh, supporters to join the Biden team. And she was saying that you'll be pleasantly surprised by some of the positions that Biden is taking, particularly on labor issues. And you'll find that it's not such a drop off from Bernie to Biden. What was your response to that? Well, you know, we've done uh, at any times quite a bit, as you know, readers may know, uh, listeners in these times has long been uh, really labor focused publication. um, And, that means doing a lot of in-depth coverage of the labor movement, uh, uh, worker organizing, specifically of like worker militancy uh, within unions, the push for union democracy, all kinds of things. So it's you know an issue that's very near and dear to me, and uh, something I care deeply about, and really want to see reflected uh, in the next administration, because Lord knows that this. Uh, Trump Department of Labor, his entire approach has just been to try to crush working people at every step. So uh, I do uh, care very deep about this issue, and I think that it's going to be one of the biggest areas that uh, next president can have an impact. So uh, I, you know, can't say that I was not moved at all by promising things about Joe Biden's labor platform. The problem is that, you know, we rank these pro- these, these platforms from all of the various candidates um, in a past issue of In These Times. And it might not surprise you to hear that while Joe Biden's labor platform, much better than Donald Trump's, which was, you know, and is non-existent, still paled in comparison to uh, the plans put forward by many of the uh, other candidates, even people like Pete Buttigieg, you know, had much more ambitious uh, labor platforms. So on that point in particular, I think that it's just a matter of, you know, the scope. Like Bernie Sanders put forward a Workplace Democracy Act that would have um, doubled union membership in America. It would have um, provided the right to strike for workers, which I think is a critical thing. You know, this is something that uh, Sarah Nelson, the flight attendant president, uh, talks about quite a bit in that, like, workers, if we want to revitalize the American labor movement, workers need to see the benefit of organizing. And there's no clearer way to do that than through striking because it gets the goods, you know, and it gets employers' attention. So that was a key uh, part of that platform put forward by Senator Sanders. And, you know, 
the major issue I have with the claims that Joe Biden will be much more progressive than progressive leftist Bernie Sanders supporters, what have you, uh, tend to believe is that just look at who he is surrounding himself with. I mean, that's the thing that's so troubling for me is that just this week, Bloomberg News reported that one of Joe Biden's main economic advisors has been Larry Summers. And, you know, you know about him, Ben. This is somebody who I would not in a million years call a champion of labor or workers' rights. It's like Larry Summers helped the head of the World Bank, where he pushed all these structural adjustment programs, kind of neoliberalization of uh, third world countries. And then in the U.S., uh, under the Clinton administration, he pushed, he, you know, helped to uh, break up Glass-Steagall, to, to combine investment and commercial banking. He uh, worked to deregulate derivatives, which was a prime cause of the 2008 financial crash. And even under Obama, he worked to make sure that the stimulus was uh, way lower than had been recommended by so many economists. Uh, I think that Larry Summers is a real kind of, he's set his life in opposition to the very working class movements that people um, like Lawrence Mitchell, who was the former head of the Economic Policy Institute, who Michelle Goldberg quotes at length in this article, you know, Mitchell has been pushing a completely opposite uh, approach to uh, economics and labor policy than Larry Summers has. And so if Joe Biden is getting his economic advice from Larry Summers, to me, it's a very big red flag. You know, so while I do appreciate trying to like look at the, uh, you know, how Biden has been operating with a positive in a positive light, especially considering the, you know, horror show that is the Trump administration uh, dealing with coronavirus. I don't totally buy, you know, buy it because there's just, you got to look at personnel, which is going to be so important in the next administration. It's going to be looking at who is actually staffing uh, a potential a Biden administration. And if it's people like Larry Summers, then I have a pretty dim view of what labor rights are going to look like under his administration. Dennis, did you want to- uh, yeah, Miles, I had a quick question. Um, now, there's a picture floating around online. You mentioned Mayor Pete, so I wanted to bring this up. There's a picture floating around online, and you need to confirm if this is an actual picture, if it's photoshopped, uh, of one Mayor Pete Buttigieg reading the book from Micah Utrecht, Bigger Than Bernie. Is that a real picture? <laughs> uh, you know, there's. I don't agree much uh, with president trump about but when he talks about the scourge of fake news in our you know media environment i've got to say that particular photoshopped image of mayor pete happily reading like that you and megan day's new book while uh, that would be a great development uh, that is the it was a really well done picture i couldn't tell like man is that really is he really doing that <laughs> mayor pete i mean <laughs> I mean, deep deep fakes are real. Like, people, it's Photoshop is a you know a hell of a thing when it comes to you know trying to subvert messages. But no, I don't think Mayor Pete's got a like a like book, unfortunately. Here we go. I'm going to show the picture okay. of Ben. Here yeah, I haven't seen this picture. Yeah, uh, yeah. We got to get Mike on the on the show to talk about his book. And we can edit it out. Here we uh, go. Look. Oh yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> that is so funny. I just saw the picture. Uh, we should post that on our Facebook wall. Uh, all right, the, 
when you were talking about uh, the conflicting messages that um, uh, or uh, advice that uh, Biden must be getting from his various advisors, it, it kind of brought back uh, memories of Barack Obama in those uh yeah, in that transition from being a candidate to being uh, a the a president, Miles, he listened to all Democrats because all Democrats came together to support Barack Obama twenty oh eight, but when push came to shove, the lefties were frozen out, and it was Larry Summers yeah. of the world who were in the room, the Rahm Emanuel's of the world who were in the room with him. Uh, counseling him, and there was just a picture I saw, a, a real picture, not a staged photo like the one of uh, Mayor Pete reading Micah, but there was a real photo of a roundtable discussion that uh, Barack Obama was having early on, and there's not a lefty in the room. And I would hope, I, I believe that Joe Biden will be our next president. I believe the Democrats will win. And um, I would hope that we would not see a repeat of this um, in 2021 because we will be facing a huge, a huge economic crisis. We talk, I mean, we're just seeing the start of it because of the way we were shutting down the economy. So I would hope uh, that Joe Biden would have learned the mistakes of Obama in 2009. My concern is he doesn't view that as a mistake. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, well, of course. And I think that that's the fundamental issue is that this is a question of worldviews, right? And, and Joe Biden has said, for one, he has no empathy for young people who are dealing with, you know, crushing student debt, uh, decrepit job market, um, a, you know, future of climate catastrophe, so on and so forth. He said he has no empathy for them. He also assured a group of, you know, private uh, hedge fund managers at a fundraiser um, months ago that nothing would fundamentally change under his administration. And I think that that just speaks to his worldview, which is that, you know, we're, we want to return to normalcy. But the normalcy under, you know, the Obama administration was a massive uh, sea of foreclosures, which fundamentally upended the social contract in America, you know, and saw that massive transfer of wealth from the poor to the wealthy, which is what we're seeing again now with these massive corporate bailout bills that are being passed in the wake of the, uh, we're in the midst of the coronavirus crisis. So I don't think that you can approach uh, a crisis like the one we're facing now with the, you know, lens of 2009, 2010, 2011 being the good times, you know, that we want to return to, uh, when we don't, you know, this is going to take very uh, fundamental rethinking of our priorities as a country uh, and, and our economy and honestly as our society. I mean, we, we got to start thinking we're bailing out the cruise ship industry, you know, with taxpayer money. Is that really the best use of our money? Does a cruise ship industry, which is serving, you know, for almost entirely wealthy individuals need to be bailed out? Does it need to even exist? I mean, these are the kind of questions that we need to raise. And instead, you know, when you hear things like Joe Biden is getting his economic advice from Larry Summers, it's very troubling. I will say, though, it's not like these are the only people that he's talking to. Joe Biden's longtime um, economic consultant was Jared Bernstein and it still is, you know, advising him and he is much more on the progressive 
end of the spectrum. He's not a lefty, but you know he's he's way better than Larry Summers. Ted Kaufman was his former uh, chief of staff, who then ended up serving out the rest of his Senate term once Biden, you know, took the the VP job under Obama. And Kaufman was kind of a, a legislated as a progressive, partially because he was completely shut out of like needing any funding because he was not planning on running again, he was just serving out a term. But he was pushing for, you know, ton, way more financial oversight and regulation than um, Biden had when Biden was in that seat. So there are some people, I think, that have by fear that could push him in a more progressive direction. But the fact that it's now being reported at the same time, you know, that the Biden campaign says that they're making, trying to make these overtures to the progressive left in the Democratic Party, you know, Bernie Sanders supporters, AOC supporters, young people, Latinos, the um, working class voters, the same people that powered the Bernie Sanders campaign. You know, this is the people of Biden camp is saying they're trying to win over. And yet they're getting advice from Larry Summers and they're not really budging on their policies. I mean, Biden uh, announced he was going to support lowering the Medicare age from 65 to 60. That's not really going to, you know, change the healthcare system in America. And as we saw, as we're seeing now with um, tens of millions of people out of work, when your employment is tied to your health care and there's an economic downturn, lose your health care and, you, you know, your life is put on trial and you could potentially, you know, face devastating economic and health consequences because of that. So I think that this crisis should give us a perspective that we need to rethink how we are running these basic uh, functions of our politics. And to me, as I, you know, have made clear, I think that things like healthcare, education, even housing should be rights, and should, we should legislate towards that. Uh, I don't. I know that Joe Biden does those things, um, but he could, you know, surround himself with people and embrace policy plank and do much more. Because you know what? The reason I say this isn't just because I want, you know, what I want, but he would make he would be a better candidate. You know, he would. He would he would have a stronger base of support behind him. He would activate people that were active in the Bernie campaign um, way more than he's doing now. If he came out and supported some of these things, if he announced, you know, that he had more progressive advisors, if he said, you know, I'm not going to nominate people like Harry Summers um, to cabinet level positions or to, you know, be my advisors or anything like that. I think that would make him a stronger candidate, especially because we saw from the exit polls, even in the state that Biden won, the voters overwhelmingly favored Medicare for all, even across the South. Yeah. So you can't make the point that it's going to be necessarily an electoral liability for you. I think it makes you stronger. And that's why I think it's so important that he turns that corner and we don't we, we don't stand satisfied with where he's at right now. Yeah. And uh, as I say, every time you're on the show, they're going to call him a, a radical socialist regardless of what he does so he might as well be a radical socialist uh and i I, and as i like to point out i get so many fundraising appeals from the right somehow or other i got on their mailing list and they're already (laughs) calling him a radical socialist so you know i don't know what you're i i can understand in a way from when you're running in a democratic primary uh his uh, trying to position himself as the centrist because the 
the notion that uh, the Democrats had, they bought into that. Uh, that's what's most electable against Donald Trump. But I think things have changed a lot since uh, those debates. I didn't buy it. it actually, I'm saying this. I'm just, uh, Miles, I was criticizing him then when he was uh, blasting uh, Medicare for all. Uh, what's your analysis of the the various uh, relief measures that are coming out of uh, Washington? There was just a second one. I believe Trump may have signed it today. I've been in uh, re- recording all day, so I don't know if he signed it past the House, past the Senate. Second round of stimulus uh, for uh, America, which, which has been socked by um, the coronavirus and closing down the economy. What's your interpretation, your analysis, uh, if you will, Miles, of these packages? Well, I think that what we continue to see is that at a time when the most vulnerable people in our society are being squeezed to a point that is unparalleled in most of our uh, lifetimes, the legislation coming out of Washington is centering a very different class of people, not the people that are the frontline workers, you know, over half of which are people of color in America, uh, not centering the people who are, you know, losing their savings, we're losing um, their homes even, uh, who can't pay rent, who can't pay the bills. These are not the people that are getting the support. The, the bills, as you know, they've been pushed out, we saw this even in the, you know, the, the, the coronavirus bill number two, the supposed paid sick leave one, uh, that left out, you only had to provide paid sick leave if you had uh, between 50 and 500 employees. So any of these big corporations that have more than 500 employees, they didn't have to follow it. And small businesses that have less than 50 people didn't have to follow it. So it's such a carve out. Uh, it's almost designed to protect the very industries that are the ones that are funding the political uh, can- the, the, the politicians that are writing these bills. Now, the, the main uh, stimulus, the $2.2 trillion one, that that could have been a, you know, a Democrat-written bill. The Maxine Waters in the House had a bill that would have guaranteed, I think, $2,000 a month to every American throughout the course of the crisis. There's similar legislation that is, has, has gotten more um, backing in the House. But that's not the bill, the bill that was debated or voted on. The bill that was debated or voted on was the Republican bill in the Senate that Mitch McConnell put forth that the Democrats then kind of tweaked. And they did win some important things like, you know, adding $600 to unemployment insurance, um, and even getting twelve, the meager twelve hundred dollars, despite how uh, it le- leaves out tons of people, including undocumented immigrants who do pay taxes. None of them got uh, the twelve hundred dollar check. There's tons of other carve-outs as well. Um, but there were some positive things. But we also saw a four trillion dollar leveraged giveaway to corporations across the country, and the only oversight that was included in it was, you know, it's supposed to be an inspector general and, you know, some oversight team and Congress is supposed to be able to, you know, take a look at what, how that these funds were being dispersed by Mnuchin and the treasury department. And Trump immediately did a signing statement where he got rid of all that mm-hmm. afterwards. So yeah. you could have seen that coming a mile away. This was the biggest, even more so than 
we saw in 2000 in the, the, the wake of the financial crisis, uh, this is the biggest corporate giveaway in modern American history in terms of, you know, taxpayer money going towards uh, corporate welfare. So I think it's really problematic and it requires uh, rethinking of how we are approaching these things and who is being centered. Because right now it's just more and more money for, you know, hedge funds, for CEOs, for banks, even the, you know, small business loan program, the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, we, we, we saw this just the other day. There's news coming out that, uh, there was a concierge service that banks were offering for their big clients to get to the front of the line. And meanwhile, the mom and pops aren't getting any of it. While with the money, where's the money going? It's going to pop bellies, it's going to Shake Shack, it's going to these massive, uh, retail chains and food outlets that don't really need it when small businesses can't get their hands on it. And, uh, it's already out of business. The problem is that what the U.S. government decided to do, and really the Republican Party decided to do, because they, you know, wrote the first version of the bill, was to say we're going to incentivize people getting losing their jobs. And so the only way you can really get financial support is by being unemployed and then applying for unemployment insurance. So all the incentives are to not be in your job, which means these companies are going to go under. Other countries didn't do this. You know, you look in the UK and Spain, uh, other places across the world, Sweden, Denmark, they all paid the paycheck for the employees. And that's what's going on. So they are keeping their employees on payroll. Whereas in the US, we're just saying, get rid of your employees. That's the only way they can get any support, which is so backwards. And I think, I, I fear it's going to just mean we're heading towards a depression because I can't see these people getting work again while we're still doing social distancing. So I think that there's, you know, I know it's a lot of response on the question of the stimulus bill, but I think it merits really being critical of how this whole process has unfolded. And I think Democrats really need to grow a backbone. And for this next round of stimulus, Mitch McConnell's already saying we can't pass more stimulus because the deficit, but Democrats need to say, hell no, people are still getting screwed and we need to do more to help them and that includes things like a you know mortgage and rent freeze that includes uh money for the post office which is uh, on the verge of going under uh, we need to make some really bold demands right now because uh, lord knows the time calls for it yeah no it's it's laughable to hear mitch mcconnell suddenly talk about uh the uh budget deficit given the, the policies of the Republican Party for the last uh, three years of Donald Trump. Actually, their their policies, whenever they're in charge, uh, when, when Bush was in charge, baby Bush uh, was in charge, it was the same way. So, yeah, it's laughable that they, they still, every now and then, uh, cling to this notion about their deficit hawks when, of course, they're running up the biggest deficits of anybody. And what you're getting at, uh, Miles, in your uh, analysis is... Well, there's two things. One, when Republicans, there's uh, three parts at play in these negotiations, the White House, the Senate, and the Congress. And the Congress is the only Democratic-run uh, entity. Uh, Trump runs the White House, and uh, McConnell runs the Senate. So uh, the Democrats ha have li are limited uh, in their leverage. They do have leverage, uh, no doubt. They do have leverage in how they exercise it. Uh, going forth will determine what these bills look like. And as you pointed out, they did get um, uh, some concessions in the last go-around. But two-thirds of the 
of the anti- of the process is controlled by Republicans, and uh, so this is this is a reality that. But what really? Democrats have to face. Uh, that's, ahead. that's very true, and I think I, I think I think that's very true, and we need to remember that it's not as if you know the Democrats control this whole system. But the thing is, the really a troubling development uh, for me is that what the Democrats are claiming to have won in this most recent round, uh, this, you know, three-point stimulus, 3.5, whatever you want to call it, the one that uh, likely was signed today, um, is that they were claiming they won funding for testing. If that's, if that's the, you know, the bargaining chip that Democrats are winning is the thing that we just need to deal with this crisis like testing is not a democratic issue. Yeah. Like Republicans need to get tested for coronavirus. It just makes no sense. But the Republicans have framed it as we'll give you, you know, we'll give you money for some money for testing, but then we get money for corporate welfare. Yeah. And it's like no other country, even these, you know, authoritarian countries around the world are all pouring federal money in the testing because they realize that's the only way you can start to think about reopening the economy and here where republicans are not not only is the you know white house saying we're not going to fund any more testing and remarkably today the trump administration announced they are not going to be part of the who the world health organization's um efforts to create a vaccine they said they don't want any part in it because you know trump thinks that it's uh you know that china runs the who whatever so you know we're not actually treating this as a public health crisis or treating it as like a political football, this issue of testing. And that is no way. I mean, there's, you can't reopen if there's no testing because people aren't just aren't going to feel safe going out. Even if you open up all the restaurants, it's just not going to work. And what McConnell says is uh, the state can go bankrupt. He doesn't want any more funding for states and municipalities. Well, how, how are you going to reopen the economy? If all the states are going bankrupt, yeah. it just doesn't make any sense. It's just, you know, it's pure um, uh, barbarity on the part of the Republican Party. And that's, I worry that the Democrats are allowing themselves to be put into this position where they brag about winning money for testing when that should be a nonpartisan issue. And what they should be winning money for is working people. That, and, you know, so that, it's something I feel very strongly about. That, that, that is, you're right on with that. That's absolutely right on. And that'll get me to this this final point I want to raise. When you get to that issue where Republicans treat testing as though it is a, uh, a chit in the negotiations with the Democrats, that underscores the reality of the political dynamics going on in this country now relating to coronavirus, the Republican Party has not bought into the the idea fully, Miles, that this is a serious health crisis. Today, Friday, there were a thousand or so protesters in the streets of Madison, Wisconsin, protesting Governor Evers' shutdown order in the state of Wisconsin. And I was telling, I was showing Dennis the picture. They weren't social distancing. They weren't wearing masks. They were right on top of each other. It was like a defiant two fingers in the middle, two fingers high to all the experts who say there it is a health danger to congregate. 
without social distancing. It's a health hazard to congregate without wearing a mask. It's a health hazard to leave the safety of your house. That's that, And the Republican Party has not forcefully denounced that movement. In fact, they're encouraging that movement. They're financing that movement. So when you say, when you point out the obvious that uh, testing is being used as a, a chit in this larger negotiations in which they're going to begrudgingly give testing equipment to states like Illinois and New York, blue states, the reality is that the Republicans haven't even agreed that this is a crisis. So I don't know how the Democrats, I, it's almost like it's a, a larger existential battle that we're in the middle of. Do you follow what I'm saying, Miles? Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I, I, you know, initially, I, uh, you know, when you uh, referred to Wisconsin protests, you call these are, you know, anti-coronavirus activists. But actually, I think what they are, you're correct, is that they're anti-evers. You know, they're against the Democratic governor and his uh, you know, social distancing orders. But I don't even think that they're necessarily against coronavirus. A lot of these people don't buy it. You know, they don't believe that they don't just believe what's in front of them because, and we should be clear, this has, you know, been proven now. You can read about it. New York Times, other places, it's largely an astro-funded uh, movement is in the, you know, there's the same groups as, you know, the usual suspects in front of the Tea Party as well, the American Legislative Exchange Council, all these shadowy uh, groups funded by the far, by far-right individuals. And, you know, they work to, uh, secretly push forward uh, far-right conspiracy theories, what have you. Um, they're funding this, but they're all real people that are coming out to these rallies that buy into it because they want to believe what they want to believe, and understandably, they don't want to see you know, their lives offended. Now, the, the class makeup of it, I think these are largely kind of business owners themselves. They're not the people that are going to be uh, that's why when you see these iconic, uh, uh, you know, photos of nurses and frontline workers blocking the protesters, it's for their own good because they want them not to congregate so that they don't get sick because the nurses are dealing with the results of this every day in the emergency rooms. And they see that this is, you know, it's, coronavirus is the number one cause of the death in America. 50,000 people are dead. That's almost as many Americans as died in the entire Vietnam War. And this has been going on for what, for, you know, a couple months tops in terms of the real death count. This is, you know, and these are the only the people that we know of, right? Because we don't, we haven't done the testing, so we don't know the full extent of it. Uh, so there's no way you could say that this is just, you know, hocked up, uh, you know, fiction or anything. It's clearly driving of true public health crisis now. And even if we are nearing a peak of this wave, that still means there's at least 50% left to go of the crisis. So it's not like it's going to evaporate in one moment, but you're very right to say that these people that are protesting it are not operating, you know, as if this is a crisis to be taken seriously. They're thinking, oh, their lives are being disrupted. And, um, they're going to raise hell about it. Now, I do think about them very still, a very small, small, small sliver of the population that buys into that stuff. But when you have a president that's at the podium saying, you know, ingest disinfectant and try to figure out, he literally said, he said, 
Trump said he found out that you that sunlight can hurt the virus, and he wondered aloud how can you get that under the skin? You know, it's just this kind of <laughs> in, yeah. incredible. Imagine like you couldn't make that up, you know. <laughs> Somebody. So when you have a person in charge of the country who's saying those things and treating and saying liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, what have you, and uh, fueling this stuff, it's all wink and a nod. And they're already – Trump might have said he was being sarcastic, but Larry Hogan, the, you know, uh, governor of uh, Maryland, Maryland. Um, mm-hmm. said uh, he got over 100 people uh, calling him uh, that had – we're specifically asking what which of these products are safe to ingest amongst about like Clorox and different bleach products to the governor's office the day after Trump said this. So he might think he's being sarcastic, but he's the president and people are watching this being broadcast live on their screens and they're responding. So, I mean, it's pretty unreal the amount of mismanagement and ineptitude at the level of the federal government that is going on. Um, one thing I do want to note, though, is that there was a study. I'm not, you know, by any means trying to uh, gloat about the public, the risk that these protesters are putting themselves into. But, you know, the study that just came out from uh, the political reporter on yesterday that said that elderly voters and, you know, elderly right wing voters are in these swing states are the ones that are the most vulnerable to die. And that could very well swing the election from. Trump is because of the you know the loss of votes that would result from the mass death in many of these swing states among his voting base. So it's really even if you look at it from a political like strategic view, very foolish of him to try to put these people that are his supporters in harm's way because we know how deadly this virus is and how quickly it kills and how that would completely upend his political fortune yeah. so it's, on every level it's just complete inanity it's it's sick and it's twisted and he's a sick twisted man he's the president of the united states and he wasn't being sarcastic i saw it uh and it was one of his stream of conscious moments and i do not wish ill on anybody uh absolutely do not wish ill on anybody uh i don't care what their political views are in the larger scheme of things but um I think it's madness what Donald Trump did yesterday, uh, and it's cowardice that the Republican Party won't stand up to him. And Miles, I say this as a guy, and I always say this: I fought the Democrat. I am Democrat to the core, but I have fought Democratic leaders in this town for thirty years on their various initiatives, which I think were ridiculous. I'm about to write an article critical of our Democratic mayor about what she just did, you know, or uh, pulled at the city council level. I just, the cowardice on the part of the Republican Party and uh, with the with the few exceptions of, of, of right-wing core of writers is sickening. And, uh, yeah. you know, so I'll leave it there. Uh, before I let you go, why don't you uh, tell folks what you got ahead? You always... Uh, got good stuff that you're working on. What are you writing? What are other writers from in these times about to come out with? Uh, give us a little promotion. Yeah, uh, yeah, of course. Um, we have been uh, publishing tons of great uh, work about the coronavirus uh, situation, the response from workers. Uh, we just put out this um, 
piece that's actually signed by a bunch of uh, leaders, including Carl Rosen, who's the president of UE, of the United Electrical Workers, um, folks from Unite Here, National Union of Healthcare Workers, um, and the Democratic Socialists of America, all signing on to this letter. Um, it's on in these Times website now called Capitalism Failing Its Coronavirus Stress Test. Only workers can turn things around. And it's a real call to action to really encourage workers to embrace militancy in the face of this crisis. Uh, you know, there was it's kind of a response to this USA Today op-ed that other labor, leader, other labor leaders put together that kind of actually was cheering on how corporations have been taking the lead and stepping up. And so this is a counter uh, uh, approach to that saying, you know, no, we shouldn't be cheering on corporate power. We should actually be uh, fighting it in the streets. And a lot of great labor leaders were, were on that. So I encourage people to read that. We also just published, uh, I think, a really interesting article on um, an issue that a lot of folks are talking about now, which is third parties, uh, not even the Green Party necessarily, but Justin Amash from Michigan, who is an independent, has been saying he might run uh, on a third party line, probably through the Libertarian Party, that, as we know, could really screw up whatever happens because of this spoiler issue we have in uh, this winner take all system uh, in American politics. So we published this article by uh, David Daly and Rob Ritchie, who uh, work for a group called Fair Vote, and they really advocate for ranked choice voting, which is a very different approach. Um, some Listeners might be familiar with it, but this piece is called Tired of Fighting About Third Parties, Just Enact Ranked Choice Voting. That really goes in because Maine is going to be the first state in November to vote for president using ranked choice voting. New York State has voted to incorporate it. States across the country are doing it. And it really gets rid of the third party spoiler issue because the person with the least votes uh, just gets eliminated and then their voters get distributed to whoever that voter put for their second and third choice to what have you. So, uh, so that's a really interesting piece. And uh, I'm going to be coming out with an article next week going into a little bit more detail on um, the stimulus bills, how they fall short, and what we need, how we need Democrats to step it up. So look out for that. And um, I'll be watching Last Dance uh, again on Sunday night, putting yeah. my Bulls gear on. <laughs> Get that Bulls hat on. <laughs> Bulls t-shirt, Bulls you know hat. It. Miles, uh, call it right now. The playoffs would be right now. Would the Bulls be in the playoffs? Uh, sadly, I think that they might like just get – I don't think they would, honestly. I think they'd probably be in the nine, that ninth seed, but they might just get into the eighth seed and then lose every game. And then the, if that had happened, though, I think that the organization would be in a much worse place because then they would have said, oh, everything's fine. We accomplished our goal, what have you. Instead, I got to say, we, Bulls fans who have been clamoring for fire guard packs for a long time, I know it's we're all social distancing now, but we should feel pretty excited because it actually happened. Yeah, and no, I, you know, yeah. I'm a cynic. I didn't think it was going to happen. And so it, this could be a real new era for Chicago Bulls and uh, for somebody who's watched them in a very decrepit state and begrudgingly uh, watched these games for years and years of losing, uh, it's kind of a hopeful experience for once. Well, I'll just say this about my beloved Chicago Bulls. Uh, yes, they would have made the playoffs. 
And yes, they would have stunned the world by defeating everyone. <laughs> and they would have been the champs. And without the coronavirus, we'd have a huge celebration in Grant Park. And you know what, folks? You can't prove me wrong because it didn't happen either way. So to, to quote Steve Kerr, that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. Uh, <laughs> Miles, thank you so much. Stay healthy. Stay well. Keep churning out the good stories. And we'll talk to you real soon, all right? Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, be good. Talk to you soon. That's great. Miles Conflas and I'm Ben Drofsky. Take care, everyone. See you, buddy.